The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. It's time for the last word on the environment. John Gibbons is with us for his weekly Thursday spot. Three things I want to talk to you about. We'll get to private jets in a moment. We'll get to the success of Germany's nine euro monthly train tickets, which are coming to an end in just a little while. But first, the weather. Not here in Ireland. We have escaped, it seems, the worst of the rain and flooding this summer autumn so far. That ain't the case in other parts of the Northern Hemisphere, though, is it? Uh, that's right, Matt. Yeah, we've obviously people would be familiar with uh, the images from Pakistan in recent times, where we had that extraordinary statistic that one third of the entire country is currently underwater. How much food would normally be underwater? I mean, okay, monsoons are a normal. Uh, occurrence in in Pakistan. That that's a known fact. But these are off the charts. And what's basically driving this is that the the increased melt from the Himalayas, which is basically the runoff from glacial melt, basically means that are getting much more. So on top of the regular monsoons, they're also getting a huge amount of additional runoff. So, so of course, they, Pakistan... So does that mean then the rivers are flooding is it at the same time as more rain is coming in as well? Precisely. It's a double whammy, if you like, of, of monsoon conditions uh, exacerbated by uh, flooding and coming, coming from the mountains. And this, is, again, has been projected that we know, for example, that in the short term, uh, scientists have projected that the Himalayas, as they begin to melt, it would mean uh, excess water flow in the whole region uh, which, of course, water is a very valuable commodity, except when it comes in devastating uh, downbursts like we're seeing now. But unfortunately, the, the medium term projections for that whole region is a drying up as the Himalayan um, glacier pack recedes. So by mid to late century, we could have exactly the opposite position in this in, in countries like Pakistan, where basically that uh, glacial ice is no more. So I guess the they're, at the moment, they're suffering from an excess. But to cast your mind ba- back, Matt, if you go back three or four months here, we were we were talking about Pakistan uh, earlier, before the monsoon, and they temperatures had hit 53 degrees Fahrenheit in Pakistan. And the effect of this, and in that whole region, we had temperatures... Uh, regularly over 50 degrees. And the effect of that, of course, again, is eating into the ice pack and it's increasing the summer melt, which, as you say, is adding to the monsoon and giving a, a, a devastating double blow to, to people in the region. Uh, we, we're looking probably at over a thousand people dead so far. Vast numbers of uh, livestock animals have been killed in Pakistan as well. So economically, this is disastrous. Ecologically, it's disastrous. And if this were one region, you'd say, OK, uh, extreme weather, as you know, Matt, is very much a, a phenomenon of the variability of weather systems. The big difference is that, for example, if you go to China, China has just yesterday, August the 31st, exited from the most extreme heat wave ever recorded in Chinese history. Now, on the 31st of August, they broke a sequence, Matt, of 81 consecutive days where the temperature somewhere in China was above 40 degrees for, for all of that period. So that's an 81-day heatwave. And there's some extraordinary pictures of the Yangtze River, particularly flowing through the city of Chongqing, where it has dropped to, I think, about one-tenth of its normal levels. That's right. And we've seen this again in France. We've seen it with the Po River in Italy. We've seen it with the uh, Rhine in Germany, where major rivers... And these are things that we've kind of never really occurred to us that we would ever live long enough to see the major rivers of Europe and the major rivers of China actually drying out. And, of course, this has consequences, again, we've talked about in relation to energy production and irrigation. Because they use the water for hydroelectric production as an alternative, as a good efficient way of producing electricity. They haven't been able to do it. They're not able to get barges 
transporting goods up and down this river and also its drinking water is not available either. That's right and in France in fact it goes another step further. Um, France has a load of uh, nuclear power stations which are a really valuable source of electricity. They've had to wind most of those back this summer because they draw cooling water from the major rivers. The Loire for example has three or four nuclear stations on it and the Loire has been so low that those stations have been practically taken offline which means that France is this summer is burning energy like gas reserves. So does that make the nuclear power plants dangerous? Not dangerous, no. They can, they, 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 they can ratchet them down, but it basically means they have to reduce production in them and output, so they basically turn them way down. This is a little bit tangential, but when you were with us on Monday talking about gas and whatever, uh, one or two people were texting in suggesting, well, you've been against uh, nuclear and that would be great. You're actually in favour of nuclear. You've said that on this programme many occasions if people would listen carefully enough. <laughs> That's right, Matt. I'm, I'm try to be pragmatic. What works? What works the best? I mean, for example, we know in the case of France over the 40 or 50 years that they've had nuclear uh, energy, uh, they've had some of the cheapest electricity in Europe and they've had some of the most, uh, the lowest uh, carbon electricity in Europe. Uh, America, 20% of its electricity is from is from nuclear sources uh, and despite the risk, or notwithstanding, if you like, the risks associated with nuclear power, the benefits outweigh those it's risks. It's a lesser risk. A far lesser risk. The problem is, of course, when you, every time uh, you burn a fossil fuel, you create not just a risk, but you create a certainty. And that certainty is of long-term damage. And if I can talk about one or two of the ways, Matt, that this is playing out. Uh, there was a study published earlier this week looking at what they call zombie ice in Greenland. And what they found is that zombie ice very simply means ice that is still part of the Greenland ice pack, but because of the configuration of the pack is now doomed to, to, ba- to breaking away. So they now know that even if every global emission stopped tomorrow, we're now committed to another 27 centimetres of sea level rise from zombie ice. Now, that's just under a foot in old money. Now, that is if everything stopped tomorrow. If we continue on our current route, we're looking at 78 centimetres just from Greenland, and that's two and a half feet. Now, people say, well, a foot, two and a half feet doesn't sound too bad. The problem is, every time you get a sea level rise, that increases by orders of magnitude the extent to which coastal flooding can penetrate inland and damage cities and flood our coastal our coastal settlements and our coastal infrastructure. So the rise that we're talking about there, Matt, is going to have devastating consequences. And that's just the stuff we've locked in. The thing is, there's so much more that we can avoid if we act. You mentioned France. There's an interesting story coming out of France in the last couple of weeks about uh, the maybe restricting the use of private jets, something that the French are going to bring to a meeting of EU transport ministers in October. What's the idea behind this? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. I mean, the the first hand you think, ah, private jets, I mean, surely there's only a few of them and they can't be that much of an impact relative, say, to commercial aviation. Now, the numbers on it are pretty interesting. Globally, uh, private jets emit 33 million tonnes of CO2. That is more than the country of Denmark. And this is just for super rich people buzzing around, amusing themselves, or in the case of business... Well, no, they're going about doing very important be, business, getting from point A to point B to get very important deals conducted. That's right. And of course, what's brought this to light, matter are these wonderful uh, flight tracker apps that have begun to track people like, say, uh, Taylor Swift taking a 17-minute flight from one part of Los Angeles to another part of Los Angeles in her private jet to beat the traffic, right? And essentially what this is doing is, first of all, we're in 
okay, we're in an ecological emergency. We know about that. But we're also in an emergency where many people listening to us today are struggling to pay their, their energy bills. They're struggling looking at what's coming down the, the, the line in the winter. So this type of egregious behaviour by the super rich and the super wealthy, it really undermines uh, public morale, I think. I just think, remember when the JP McManus Golf Pro-Am was on recently, I think it was 21 private jets flew into Shannon Airport in one day bringing the golfers in to raise money for charity. We see examples in English football are present where apparently now the teams are all travelling by private jet rather than getting on buses like they used to. Chelsea complained recently when they lost to Leeds uh, that's because they couldn't get all of the team onto the one flight. They had to have three separate flights and uh, then some of the coaching staff had to travel by bus. Uh, these are, these are uh, what they call first world problems. But just to underline just how big an impact it is. Let's say, for example, a typical flight from, say, Dublin, London to New York. That creates, on a big size plane, about 200 tonnes of CO2. Now, you divide that out over the passengers, it's about half a tonne each. If, on the other hand, you take the same flight on a private jet, you're adding 25 tonnes of CO2 per person on that flight, excluding the flight crew who are just there to do a job. So it is absolutely massive. And if I were to take a few examples, Matt, of the the, the kind of transport emissions of the super rich. Now, these, by the way, include private jets and also private yachts. Uh, Roman Abramovich, eight and a half thousand tonnes a year. The average person, by the way, is about eight tonnes. So Roman Abramovich, Bill Gates, seven and a half thousand tonnes. Michael Dell, six and a half thousand tonnes. Jeff Bezos, a modest two thousand tonnes. And Elon Musk, if you exclude his space projects, about just under 2,000 tonnes. See, the space projects is interesting because the satellites that are put up by SpaceX are very important for providing communications around the world. But I read one estimate recently that what is being done in sending these rockets into space is actually in excess of the entire global aviation sector's contribution to global warming at present, carbon emissions. Well, it's massive, that's for sure. And the more space junk that we push up there, and you're absolutely right in the case of of, of, uh, low-orbit satellites for for telecommunications, these can be extremely useful, particularly in the third world where we may not have fixed uh, infrastructure. So I agree, there is a value and there is a a benefit, but the costs... But you send a rocket, every time you send it through Mm -hmm. the atmosphere, you are emitting enormous amounts of carbon by comparison with a conventional flight. Oh, absolutely. And not in that. And this applies, by the way, for all aviation. When you emit CO2 at altitude, it stays up there. When you emit CO2... There are no carbon sinks up there. Well, for example, every every tonne of CO2 that's emitted at sea level, about half of that is absorbed, for example, by the world's oceans. But when you go up in a plane using enormous amounts of energy to, 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 to escape gravity, you then dump your CO2 right into the upper atmosphere. You also dump other uh, chemicals like nitrous oxide that are, again, strong uh, greenhouse warming gases. And I suppose the, the key thing with all of these, of course, is the scale, Matt. There's just so much. You've spoken to us on this programme previously about the €9 Euro public transport tickets in Germany. Uh, it's that you could travel unlimited, I think, on trains and buses for this. Proven to be enormously popular. It was due to come to an end yesterday. I wonder, are the Germans going to keep it? Well, I was just reading this morning, in fact, on DW, the, the, the German state website, that they're looking at extending it. It's been enormously popular. As you said, it was brought in in June. And the purpose, of course, was to, well, first of all, the real purpose was to reduce inflation. And apparently, Matt, it's topped 2% of the inflation rate in Germany. So it's had a hugely important political impact. Now, in terms of emissions, uh, it's reckoned over the three-month experiment period, it saved about 1.8 million tonnes of emissions. What does now, that mean? Okay, what does that mean? Uh, if you were to break that down, 1.8 million tonnes would be, for example, maybe 
a few percent of Germany's overall emissions, right? A few percent. Ireland, for example, our annual emissions are about 40 million tonnes of CO2 and about 20 million tonnes of methane from, from livestock. So it's quite big. I mean, by German standards, it's modest. But that was just that one change. Now, um, they sold in that period 52 million tickets and a fifth of those tickets, Matt, were sold to people who never use public transport. So what it showed is two things. Number one, if you reduce the price, people like it. But even more than that, what they did was they simplified it. This is like your your golden ticket. With one ticket, you could use every system in, in Germany. So you didn't have to book this one and change it to that one and so on. Now, the effect of that was that people found the simplification of transport is was a huge benefit. Now, having said that, relatives of mine were in Germany about a month ago and they had huge problems using the trains because the trains are grossly oversubscribed because they've been so popular. Now, you could say that's the prov- that proves the failure of public transport or you could say, well, actually, what we need in countries like Germany is an awful lot more public transport. Okay, John Gibbons, thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you again next Thursday for your regular spot. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today, F-